This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. My guest now is award-winning News24 investigative journalist Jeff Wicks. He has just co-authored the book Eight Days in July, Inside the Zuma Unrest that Set South Africa Alight. The book deals with the lead-up to the looting and attacks on infrastructure and also provides first-hand accounts of the events themselves. Six months later, I thought it would be interesting to see what has happened and look at the chances of it happening again. So I'm absolutely delighted, Jeff, to have you um, update us. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us, Sharice. And I'll dive right in and go to your first question in terms of what we've seen happen since then, especially considering uh, in terms of accountability, the short answer is not much. We've seen some of the main protagonists from the law enforcement realm being called to account before Parliament. We've seen President Cyril Ramaphosa instituting a three-person panel to investigate the causes and the reaction to the riots. And, of course, the South African Human Rights Commission is conducting their own probe with their own particular focus. But in terms of results, uh, prosecutions, arrests and convictions, we've seen nothing. And um, it's quite a sad state of affairs, if we're honest with ourselves, looking at um, the damage that this inflicted on two provinces in this country. 360 people are now dead. Millions, if not billions, have been cleaved off the economy. And no one has yet been called to account for this. Jeff, you talk about the, the accountability and the fact that nothing has happened there. But in terms of the devastation caused, okay, obviously, um, you know, the displaced people, the people who lost their jobs, the malls that were looted, where are they six months later? It's, it's quite interesting to, to sort of do a comparison between the businesses that survived and those that did it. A decent example is um, the Brookside Mall in Peter Maritzburg, which was a newly constructed facility with billions. And that was raised to the ground in the early days of the looting and of the unrest. The owners and the investors who are linked to that property have, have pledged to rebuild. But the, the net effect of this is that people in those areas, especially when you look at employment, will struggle to draw an income from those places for years to come because the fire raised that place in a matter of hours. And rebuilding it is going to take years. And I, I think that's an example which is replicated both across Kuzumi Mattel and Gauteng. And those are just the businesses that have been able to rebuild. A lot of the economic damage or a significant stake of the e- economic damage comes as a result of small businesses, people who do not have a considerable depth of financial means, who have been forced to shut up shop and close their doors. There was a gentleman who we spoke to at the heart of the unrest who who had a printing business in Springfield Park, which was an epicenter of an orgy of looting that went on for days in Durban. And it was a business that he built from the ground up for 30 years. And everything he has was destroyed and he had to close his doors. And I think those stories of tragedy are not unique. I think many hundreds of people, if not thousands, have much harder lives now than they did before this happened. I think, Jeff, the frightening thing that comes throughout, there are a lot of frightening things that come out in the book. And firstly, congratulations to you and your colleagues on an excellent book. I mean, I know it was put together really quickly, but I couldn't put it down. And I read it while in KwaZulu-Natal, having just driven the N3 and kept wondering on my way there, um, you know, I wonder what was affected. And on the way back, I felt um, so, so much more enlightened and understanding of the situation. Jeff, everybody knew it was going to happen, but yet it seemed to take everybody by surprise. Everybody being intelligence, that is. I think if if we consider intelligence during that time, and and it's been a a considerable point of focus 
in the coverage of media houses across the country since this broke out was where is our intelligence cluster and arms of the state who are meant to have the jump on this kind of thing and, and tell us in advance so that arms of law enforcement and others can prepare them. And what we established in the course of researching the book and consulting a, a trove of evidentiary material we managed to get our hands on was that the intelligence cluster had provided a warning as early as May that something might happen. But what is distinctly lacking in those warnings is detail. And they identified a warning over the constitutional court's judgment and not Jacob Zuma's deadline to hand himself over. And, you know, there's no escaping the conclusion that law enforcement failed this country during that period. Whilst the unrest and, and the insurrection, if, if we want to call it that, was definitely ordered and by design, they made a complete rout of the police because they exploited a legacy of weaknesses that have persisted consistently over the past decade. And you know, that's another frightening thing. And it's a conclusion that, that we draw in the book is, so we examine the causes of the unrest and say, okay, well, the the undeniable catalyst was the arrest of former President Zuma. And then those loyal to him appear to have worked very hard to set in motion a campaign of instability. And what ended up happening was that the poorest of the poor, the most desperate in a very disparate country that we live in, we're weaponized. And that is why this spread so quickly, so fast, with such a devastating toll. And the socioeconomic ills that enabled that to happen, poverty, inequality, and racism, all of that has existed and continues to exist. If anything, we're in a worse off position from a socioeconomic perspective after that, considering the damage it was done, that was done to the economy, both in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. And so... We say that the conditions created a perfect tinderbox for this to happen with the right motivation. And there's very little that stands in the way of it happening yet. The other thing that you mentioned in the book that, uh, is that you're an experienced journalist. You've, you've kind of expressed that you thought you'd seen it all, but the mood was very different. What was the mood like? It was a feeling I've never felt before, like you say, and something I haven't felt since. You know, in, in this country, in, in, in a country where things are so unequal, protest action and unrest uh, is a daily occurrence. And it happens all across the country. And, and as journalists, anyone will tell you that um, attending and covering protest action, you you kind of become somewhat adept at it. You you. you you learn the ins and outs, and, and you quickly realize that the protest action is linked to a, a specific crisis or need, be it water or electricity. There is a, a wave of civil disobedience, and it's usually confined to one area. And it's usually very transient because it will wear itself out over a couple of hours, in extreme cases, maybe days. But in, what was different about this was that you, protest action looked stenciled, and we could see it from, from the morning over the weekend, from, from the Saturday morning. As protest action was, was breaking out, it was all happening simultaneously. And what that did was it completely stretched police resources uh, to the brink that they actually couldn't move. And that was the start of the decline. That was the beginning of the downhill 
uh, slope that we that ended up having to have seen the army deployed to restore order. The army was called in. There was no state of emergency declared, though. Do you think the army were called in too late? And do you think a state of emergency should have been declared? I think the army should have been deployed sooner. Um, I think from from what we know, speaking to our sources um, in the intelligence cluster, and of course referring to those documents that we found, um, it was fairly clear uh, from the first couple of days that um, the rule of law was threatened. And I mean, even publicly, that um, is underscored by the fact that KZN Premier Sitlis Akalala on the Friday urgently requested that Cyril Ramaphosa consider pardoning Jacob Zuma because he feared what would happen. And um, obviously, all of that ended up proving true. And I think we were incredibly slow to react, um, not only from a policing perspective, but then when the army was deployed. But when we get to something like the state of emergency, that's that's where I'll say absolutely not. Um, I, I think the right calls were made in terms of state of emergency because what is not really well understood is the um, or far-reaching ramifications that has on people's freedom of movement, freedom of expression, access to the internet. And, and I think that would have been a very heavy-handed curtailment on people's rights. And I think part of the reason for that is is because it was really localized to two provinces, two problem provinces that that um, where Jacob Zuma's support was the highest, and that sort of explains why that happened. But in terms of the state of emergency, um, I don't think we'd reach that point. Jeff, no arrests have been made. The buildings still destroyed. The economy shattered. You said that things were different then. As South Africa, like collectively moved on or are we scarred are things for you when you go out is there still that kind of tension or is it back to to normal the new normal which we love to say yes south africa is such an interesting place because i i think the south african people have, have a huge uh appetite or um endurance for calamity you know this is true of the news cycle in this country the news cycle moves very quickly from one disaster to the next so if we think back we had those eight days in July, which, to be blunt, was probably the biggest threat to our constitutional democracy um, since its dawn. And then within a month, because of issues at ESCOM and load shedding, the focus shifts. And that's part of the reason why we were so keen to write the book and write it when we did, is because this is such an important event in our country's history, and it's important that it's chronic. We by no means produced a comprehensive account. We could have written several books over, and this is actually a moving target. But the reality is chronicling that and having that first rough draft of history is important to hold people to account to say this is something that won't be forgotten. And you touched on arrests, and this is something that was a consistent theme throughout the coverage of this unrest was Police Minister Becky Thaler waxing lyrical about arresting the 12 instigators. And that number at one point rose to 15. But when you look at who these people are, I mean, really, they're just washed up radio DJs and social media jockeys who, at the very best, would be considered mid-level agitators. The reality is the architects of this, the people who set these plans in motion, because there were plans, definitely, those people are still in the ether. And you're kind of suggesting we know who they are. Well, we can surmise who who, who they are. And um, we may not have the minutiae of of what is going on in the state security agency in terms of who they have identified. But case in point, let's look at uh, Jacob Zuma's daughter, Dutizida Sambutla-Zuma, who was very vocal on Twitter throughout the unrest and widely regarded as having fueled the fire by cheering 
rioters, looters on throughout that. And at the time, uh, the police said that they will be investigating her for this conduct. And six months on, we've heard nothing. And uh, it's it's it actually beggars belief to think that in terms of your investigation, all you really need to do is, is examine content which is already public, yet you haven't and you haven't acted. And I think part of that has to link back to a lack of political will. And that's what all of this was about. You know, when you break it down and distill it to its very barest form, this was a faction fight within the ANC that spilled onto the streets and became bloody. And you know, what this a very embarrassing period in our history does is forces the ANC to introspect and take blame. And part of that blame is singling out those in your ranks who set this in motion. We haven't seen that done, and the ANC needs to do that. Jeff, you said South Africans, you know, move from calamity to calamity, but we are jumpy. We are a lot more jumpy than we were six months ago. So when um, Parliament burnt and, um, you know, attacks on the constitutional court, we are a little bit like, what is going on? Are we are we right to be so? I mean, uh, is everything linked or is there no indication that there is, that everything is just serendipitous? From my perspective, I can't see any sort of causal link between the the, the unrest and the parliament fire and the attack on the constitutional court. When you really look at the merits of each incident and, and examine them sort of with a sober mind. But what you say about South Africans being on edge is certainly true. And it's completely understandable. I think a lesson that this taught the South African public was that this is an example of how quickly things can go wrong. We went from sporadic protests on a Thursday and by Sunday, one entire province, one of the largest in the country, was completely cut off. And that was the beginning of a, a food crisis and a fuel crisis. And the, complete, the, 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 the police were completely brushed aside. And that should give every South African cause for concern and say, if this happens again, what will law enforcement be able to do that's different? And I mean, I've spoken to people and there's anecdotal examples of people who have immigrated because of this, because of this instability, because they refuse to raise their children in this environment where, should this happen again, people will have to arm themselves with cricket bats and hockey sticks and take to the streets to protect their neighborhoods and protect the, 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 the food and the shops before there's a complete run on things. And, um, you know, I think a lack of accountability fuels that. And a lack of progress in exacting some form of justice absolutely fuels that. Um, so people's apprehension, I think, is inevitable. Jeff, we don't have time, so I'm going to sneak in just this last question. I mean, if you're saying this is an internal battle within the ANC that's gone wrong and was sparked by, you know, the jailing of... Uh, former President Jacob Zuma, would further arrests not actually lead to further violence? There's always that potential, but I think we have to be resolute in the notion that South Africa has a vibrant constitutional democracy and we are a country of laws where everyone is equal before it and everyone needs to be held to account. And I think it's absolutely pivotal that that happens in this instance. And, you know, Jacob Zuma has styled himself as a perpetual victim since he, he, he left the union buildings and his followers have echoed that call. And it was this victimhood and his refusal to take accountability that landed us in the situation. I think it sends an even more dangerous message if nothing happens to the antagonists of this unrest. I don't think I could get more clear than that, Jeff. So I'm going to leave you with that last word. Um, yeah, thank you very much for joining me. And I'm just going to repeat, the book is Eight Days in July, Inside the Zuma Unrest That Set South Africa Light. And it's co-authored by Kanita Hunter, Jeff Wicks and Kavil Singh. It is available at, I think, every single bookstore. And uh, Jeff, just to say, it was, it was not a, 
uh, it was not an easy read. It was an extremely hard read, but it read very quickly. And all three of you are very good journalists, so uh, you, you know how to write and tell a story. And as harrowing as it is, I really recommend it. Thank you very much, Reese. It's uh, you'll be able to find it at all good bookstores, and we're printing a couple hundred more copies because stocks are running low. But it's also available online. Thank you very much. That was a News Twenty Four investigative journalist, Jeff Wicks.